So it might be one thing to say, we're going to give a, a bump for African-Americans relative to whites. Yeah. Maybe another thing to say, we're going to give a bump for whites relative to Asian-Americans. episode of Mixtape the Podcast, I had the pleasure of talking with a professor at Duke University named Peter Arsidiakono. I can never pronounce it correctly, uh, no matter how many times I try. I first met Peter in graduate school. Uh, He was probably then an assistant professor at Duke, uh, where he has spent his entire career. I was a, a PhD student at the University of Georgia, and he had a research paper on a topic that I was also working on involving marriage markets. Uh, He's been an incredibly prolific producer in the area of labor economics and education, as well as uh, affirmative action. And he uses tools uh, in econometrics that I largely never invested in, structural econometrics and discrete choice modeling. So when I read his work, I usually do it both because I'm interested in the paper and the paper topic, but also because I'm hoping that this will be a chance for me to open my mind a little bit more and pick up on some of that, uh, some of that econometric modeling that I lack. Peter is also an expert witness in a high-profile case right now involving affirmative action and racial discrimination at Harvard University and the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, both of which are, are uh, have been combined into a single case. As I understand it, that's going before the Supreme Court soon. In this interview. We sort of walk through a lot of big and small issues around society's preferences around poverty and equality, as well as the role that higher education is playing in both. My name is Scott Cunningham, and this is Mixtape, the podcast. Okay, uh, this is great. Um, uh, I don't know if you remember. So this is uh, um, uh, an, an interview with a uh, professor of economics at Duke University, Peter Ars. Our city, Akino, um, uh, and we're going to be talking about uh, a range of topics. But just to give the read the reader and the the listener a little bit of background, um, Peter, could you tell me a, a little bit about yourself uh, and uh, what your involvement is with um, a current case going before the Supreme Court involving University of North Carolina and Harvard University? Certainly, and thanks for having me on. Um, I've been at Duke now for over 20 years. This was my first job out of out of grad school and stayed here ever since. Uh-huh. And a lot of my work has been on higher education, both with regard to choice of college major, as well as affirmative action. Mm. And one of the really dissatisfying things about working on affirmative action is that um, universities hide their data. So you can't really get a good sense of how the programs are working because they don't, um, you typically don't have the data. Uh, and I think that that really matters because to me, so much of the discussion about affirmative action is in the binary. Either we have it or we don't have it. But what it means to have it is something you know, as economists, we would think about that's something we'd be optimizing over. 
And so, you know, there's really a large space between race as a tiebreaker in admissions and what somebody like Abram Kendi would advocate for, which would be more of a quota system. Mm. And uh, so thinking about where you stand on that, to me, um, I had this opportunity to work on these two cases, uh, two lawsuits, uh, one brought against Harvard and one against UNC on the role of race in these admissions processes. And for me, it was an opportunity to sort of look behind the veil mm -hmm. and see how these programs actually operated. Mm -hmm. My intent was always to, um, you know, a feeling as though if I'm going to be an expert on affirmative action, I should know how these processes actually work. So my intent was always to use this for the purposes of research as well. Mm. And we've written a number of papers um, out of the Harvard case, uh, four have been accepted now, and we just released a fifth one on racial preferences of both schools. And we'll see what, what happens with that. So those lawsuits, um, you know, I testified in trial at both those, both those cases. My counterpart in the Harvard case was David Card, who recently won the Nobel Prize. I was wondering how I would respond to that. And uh, actually my response, I got to go up against a, a Nobel Prize winner. Yeah, um, right, right. Um, so, you know, those experiences were somewhat traumatizing, but uh, you know, that, <laughs> uh, you know, both experts, David Cardico and Hawksby, are pillars in the field and people who have been very helpful to me and who I have a, a great deal of respect for. Yeah, yeah. So these cases have now, um, you know, in both those cases, the side I was on lost at the first round. In the Harvard case, they also lost at the appellate round. Mm. Um, in UNC, it didn't actually go through the appellate round because so, the Supreme Court merged the cases. Both the Harvard University case and the Chapel Hill case uh, were already decided, but not at the Supreme Court level. That's right. So the decision was appealed. It's now before the Supreme Court. Yeah. I think the Supreme Court scheduled here arguments in October, and then we'll see when they release a decision. Okay. So, so and these are both cases involving uh, um, affirmative action and racial discrimination amongst uh, particular groups of people is that groups of students is that right that's right though in the unc case um there's actually no claim of asian american discrimination so that actually you only see that at harvard you don't see that at unc I, that doesn't mean i think that uh, asian discrimination is unique to harvard right i think it has to do with the fact of there not being that many Asian Americans at, uh, you know, in North Carolina. Right. And so, it's always going to be a bigger issue at the very top schools. And you are, were called in as an expert witness for the plaintiff in both. That's right. All right. So David Card is the expert witness for Harvard, representing Harvard, against an accusation of, what exactly is the accusation against both of these institutions and who brought these accusations against them? So the group is called Students for Fair Admissions. 
I mean, this, um, and, you know, they basically got groups of students to, um, as, as their plaintiffs, though it's not about those particular students in terms of remedies. Um, and in Harvard, there are sort of three claims. One, um, whether or not they're discriminating against Asian American applicants relative to white applicants. Mm -hmm. Two, whether the size of the, of the preferences given for underrepresented groups is constitutional. And three, whether there were race-neutral alternatives that they could have used. So the Supreme Court has said, if there is a race-neutral alternative, you should use that. Okay. Um, I'm not really involved with the race-neutral part. We had a different expert for that aspect. Yeah. Though in both cases, Card and Hawksby actually did the race-neutral part as well. What, what exactly does the Constitution say a admissions committee can use when drawing up a student cohort? Well, so I'm not sure what the constitution has to say on it, but I can say, you know, what the, the history of this of the court challenges have been. Okay. So um, I think it's title six of the civil rights act said you're not supposed to use race. Race. In these types of things. Or, uh, and there are other categories too. Okay. But race is sort of the focus of, of this one. Now, you know, the reason they had that was because of the history of ill treatment of African-Americans. Right. Uh, and this is obviously going in the other direction mm. uh, with regard to um, African-Americans receiving preferences in the admissions process. Mm. Mm. So, but then the history was that um, the, the original decision, the Bakke case sort of said, look, you can't, use race um, in admissions because of reparations. You can only use it because of the benefits of diversity. So the state can have an interest in diversity. Mm. And that was sort of a compromised position to get that swing justice to sign on to it. Mm. Since then, there have been a number of cases. I think the, the ones that are most relevant right now are the ones that, that came out of the Michigan cases. Yeah. And there was one at the undergraduate level, which uh, they found that you could not use race as part of an explicit point system. Mm. So you, you, know, you get points for having a good SAT score, points for being a particular race, you add them up together, then you can rank the, the applicant. They, they, so there were schools that were doing a point system based on individual characteristics like race. And that was, and that was at that moment, it was unclear whether that would be legal. It was, I guess, or was it, was it something that schools were potentially in a legal kind of bad situation when they were using it or was it just not, not known? I, I don't think it was clear. And that's where the, the court ruled. You cannot use it in that way. Got it. Okay. At the same time, there was um, a case against Harvard's law school. And on that one, they said that you could use race uh, holistically. Mm. Now, as an economist, I can express anything as a formula. And then the question is, you know, um, whether you see all parts of the formula or not. Yeah. So it gets a little tricky. And I think that that, 
you know, from my perspective, I would have rather had the ruling go in the exact opposite way. Mm. Conditional on if we're going to find in favor of one or the other, mm-hmm. I, I would prefer a point system to a holistic one because then everything's sort of clear. Clear, yeah. It's singular and precise. Have a, I mean, have instead of to hide their data, you know. Yeah, it, it seems like lots of times with the law, the 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 imprecision of this language, as though it's a solution to the problem, is is really challenging for designing policy. I totally agree. Yeah. Um, So, okay. I want to set up the reader a little bit, uh, the listener, to uh, know who you are before we dive into this, because I'm loving this this thread, but uh, I don't I want people to know who you are. So before we get more into uh, the case, can you tell me uh, where you grew up? and why you got into economics. Your first, you know, what was the touchstone that brought you into this field? So I I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, My first set of years were actually in Ellensburg, Washington, which is a Mm -hmm. town of 13,000. My dad was a math education professor. Oh, okay. What Uh, university was he a professor at? Central Washington University. Okay, okay. And then, you know, hey, what did you say it was? What was it again? It was math education. Math education. Yeah. So he was teaching teachers how to teach math. Oh, so you've always been it's sort of in the family to be interested in high, be interested in education. Yes. Yeah, so and even this math how, education part, that's that's another way of describing an economist that studies education. And right. Math, math education. Well, my, my parents actually met in linear algebra class. So. Oh, that's romantic. <laughs> And I'm only, I've got two brothers and they were both math majors. Oh, I'm, wow. Okay. I'm, I was the only non-math major. Okay. Okay. But I came into college and started out in chemistry. Um, uh, I think econ PhD programs are filled with former hard science majors. No joke. Yeah. Yeah. They hit organic chemistry and then they changed their major. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, you know, I just couldn't stand the lab. So it was too yeah. social. And one of my good friends, a guy who ended up being the best man at my wedding, um, was a couple of years ahead of me and told me I should take an economics class. Mm. And it was amazing. You know, I think uh, just the way of thinking um, just worked naturally uh, for me. Well, so when you say way of thinking, the, the way of thinking that, that was kind of like, can you, can, can you tell me what you what your like 19 year old self would have been like, you know, jarred by, like, what was it? What are the specific things that that economic way of thinking that he was noticing? Well, it just fit with um, a lot of how, how I operated. So I I view economics as a great model of fallen man. Uh Fundamentally, um, you know, I was the guy who always looked for the loopholes. So responding really well to incentives, I could had a keen eye for how I could game the system. Right. And so I think right. a lot about what economics is doing is, you know, the dismal science, right? Yeah. Uh, sort yeah. of rains on the parade of well-intentioned policies. Right, right. You know, how are people going to get around the, the policies? Well, that's where I lived was figuring out, you know, mm-hmm. how I could. How I could game the system. 
Right, right, right. So you were watching this idea of uh, that kind of like rational choice paradigm. Is that what you mean? And that, that, that people would just simply, if they have goals, those goals don't just go away with a, with a policy, they might just continue to try to achieve those goals at, at lowest cost, even then. Exactly. Right, right. And the other stunning thing, which I think really affected why I ended up doing the research that I did, was uh, for me, the chemistry classes were just way harder uh-huh. than economics classes. Yeah. And I'm not trying to say that any classes are easy. Yeah. But there is definitely large differences mm-hmm. in every university in what the expectations are mm-hmm. um, across across fields. And yeah. that that distorts people's behavior. Mm. So I I view it that um, most colleges are subsidizing students to go into low-paying fields. Uh, and how do they subsidize them to do that? They um, offer higher grades mm. and lower workloads, smaller class sizes. Um, all those things work um, so that you know lots of people come in wanting to major in well-paying fields and switch and switch out. Right, right, right. And they right. do so because of the incentives the universities provide. Yeah. But, you know, so you got interested in economics and that's like, you know, you're, you're sort of describing some sort of uh, price theory kind of microeconomics. But I, you've also are, have made a career out of being such a strong econometrician in this area of structural econometrics and discrete choice modeling. How did you get interested in those topics? What was your first reaction to econometrics? I had a very strange econometrics background. So um, my first year econometrics was taught by Chuck Mansky. Oh. The whole year. And so yeah. it was lots of bounds, you know. Ah. And then my second year, it was all John Rust. Mm. So like a complete swing, right? So you go from the non-parametrics, what can you identify under the smallest number of assumptions Mm. to what can you identify if you want to answer something really big? You got to make a lot of assumptions to make that. Oh boy, that's an interesting journey right there. So I actually never had the mostly harmless econometrics at all. Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, the econometrics has always been... This was Wisconsin. That's right. Yeah. That's right. What year was this? And the, econometrics, the advances were always more because I needed to do something to estimate my models. Right. This was like mid-90s? Not, uh, this would have been the mid-90s or late-90s? I like to say late-90s. Yeah, I got, 90s? I got my okay. PhD. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, okay, keep going. Sorry. So, you know, I was thinking about my own experience. Um, in terms of choosing a college major and thinking about, well, people are learning over time. They start out those STEM classes and figure out, wow, this is a little bit harder than I expected. Yeah, yeah. And then move through. Right. So I had in mind, I actually had the idea for my job market paper my first year um, and uh, had this idea of a forward-looking model of how people choose their college major. Mm-hmm. And so then I go into John Russ's office, 
because he's my second year econometrics professor and was like describing this problem to him that you know people are making decisions today given expectations about the future mm-hmm. and he says yeah i think i can help you with that uh and i was like no you don't understand this is a really hard problem <laughs> and of course you know john rust had written the seminal paper about you know how to estimate these types of models and right. he was fantastic with me incredible you know he didn't say idiot <laughs> Could you, if you at least look at what i do before you come to my office <laughs> uh, he was fantastic with me yeah uh, yeah and it, actually, the funny story about that, too, is he's actually the only reason I'm an economics professor, because oh, yeah. I only got into one grad school, uh, got rejected from much worse places in Wisconsin. It was the only place that uh, accepted me. Mm. And the joke was that that was the year John Russ let everybody in. So there were 53 of us in the <laughs> first class. That's awesome. 17 got PhDs. Wow. And... Um, you know, if you look at, uh, I mean, another guy, one of my friends, I, I just actually found out we were actually at a conference in honor of John Rust this past weekend. Yeah. And it turns out that was the only place that admitted him as well. And he's been incredibly successful too, you know. The John uh, Rust fixed effect is filled with stories. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> uh, that's really cool. That's really cool. But I, I'm curious, you know, that thinking about, what you're, this is, this is, I, I want to get to the Harvard uh, and the Chapel Hill, but before we move on, you know, you could imagine had you gone to, to like Princeton or MIT and worked with, or, or Berkeley and worked with uh, these kind of like um, uh, the, the treatment effects guys, you know, like uh, Embens and Angrist and Card and Kruger and Orly and all these people that the it's not just that your knowledge of econometrics would have been slightly different even the the way the kinds of questions that you would be asking might be different so I'm curious what do you think your training in structural with under Mansky and Rust how has that shaped not just the way you do your work but even the types of questions that you ask that you imagine you might not have asked, you know, like, for instance, I mean, just even thinking, you know, modeling choice. I'm sorry. I don't know. I lose you. Uh, You froze on me. Oh, I froze. Okay. You're still frozen. I'm still frozen. Okay. There. Okay. Now you're back. You're asking about what types of questions. Yeah. What kinds of questions uh, do you think, you um, uh, ended up being really interested in and working on not just like, you know, the model that you wrote down, but even the, the actual topics. Cause I, I'm curious, I'm wondering if listeners could really sort of frame their understanding of the structural versus this kind of causal inference tradition, not just in terms of the technical pieces, but like, this is practically how uh, a, the kinds of work a person ends up uh, that you think you ended up doing versus if you had had Angus as an advisor? Well, I think, I think it has shaped me quite a bit. Um, I am certain that if I'd gone to a place like Chicago, um, I would have probably ended up working with Steve Levitt. 
um, I am naturally attracted to some of those topics that are more of a free economics type nature. And if you look at it, we actually had competing papers yeah. on discrimination in the weakest link game show. Uh-huh. You know? Yeah. And I've written a couple of sports papers. So, you know, I have that in me to think about those types of things. I find those them types of topics, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. I think that uh, the Mansky Russ combination did have a big effect on me. Um, and in the types of questions that I asked, which is what structural brings to the table is thinking about mechanisms. Mm. So when you think about the effect of affirmative action on outcomes, understanding why the effect is what it is matters, yeah. you know, how it affects uh, application behavior, how it affects what major issues, what, what would be those counterfactuals? And for that, I think you need some of these structural uh, approaches. Right. Now, one of the things about those structural approaches is they typically involve, you know, making some pretty big assumptions. Yeah. And I think that that's where the Mansky influence has had on me because I also have papers that use um, subjective expectations data. And I think that that is actually an incredibly promising area of work Mm. it's quite clear that people don't know as much as they should know when they make important decisions, yes. certainly higher education being a, a prime example of that. Yeah. COVID really makes that clear. You know, how can it be that the people who are unvaccinated are least likely to wear a mask? Clearly they're operating under very different beliefs about right. um, what's going to happen. Right. Right, right, right. Um, okay, so let's move into this Harvard Chapel Hill project. So kind of setting it up, tell me what is the first event that happens that makes this a case against Harvard, not counting alleged discrimination, but like the actual, you know, historical event that leads to a need for an expert witness? Well, I think the need for the expert witness uh, came about because Harvard had to release their data uh, in the context of the trial. Mm. So in the context of the lawsuit, the claim was there were some smoking guns that suggested the possibility, for example, of Asian-American discrimination. That would not fit this holistic criteria that you mentioned. Well, so it's, an, it's an interesting question, right? So you can't have with the holistic criteria, you can take race into account, but the question is whether you could take race into account in a way that penalizes a group relative to white applicants. Yeah. So it might be one thing to say, we're going to give uh, a bump for African-Americans relative to whites. Yeah. Maybe another thing to say, we're gonna give a bump for whites relative uh, to Asian-Americans. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. So, uh, so they've, they've had a lawsuit brought against Harvard. Is that, is that Harvard's had a lawsuit filed against them? What year is that? Sorry, say it again. What year would that have been? Oh man. I think it was back in 2015 or something like that. 2015. Did anybody see that coming or was this odd? This is just inevitable. 
I think that, uh, I mean, they were advertising for plaintiffs, you know, students who had been rejected. So mm-hmm. certainly there was an intent um, to file such, a, file such a lawsuit for sure. And then, you know, they had to weigh what universities to file it against. Um, and uh, they chose Harvard because of the pat- patterns on what were going on with Asian Americans. And I think UNC had more to do with the, there was some evidence in the record from past cases that race neutral alternatives would work there. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you get involved. How do you get selected as the expert witness? And what's your job exactly in all this? So I think I got selected, you know, I've written a couple of survey articles on affirmative action. And, you know, I view it that there are lots of nuances. So the fact that I would actually say there are nuances as opposed to it being always good. Right. uh, Made it attractive uh, for them, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, back in 2011, there was actually a protest here at Duke over one of my studies. Oh, really? Um, Yes. So that one, we were actually using Duke data and, you know, confronting you know, a tough fact, which is um, lots of black students at Duke came in wanting to major in STEM and economics, but um, switched out in exploring why they were switching out at such a higher rate relative to white applicants. Mm-hmm. So for men, it was very extreme. Yeah. You know, 8% of white men switched out of STEM and uh, economics. Mm-hmm. Um, to a non-STEM, non-economics major, you know, over 50% of black males switched out, you know, and you look at that, you think that's a, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. And um, once you account for the, you know, differences in academic background prior to Duke, all those racial gaps go away. And I think what, um, you know, the, the, path to the protest to serve a long one. So I won't get into all details of that. But I think that they didn't believe the fact at first. And what was the fact exactly? That the racial discrimination, the racial bias, the racial differences vanished once you conditioned on what exactly? I conditioned on uh, academic background. Oh, I see. Okay. And such like that. But I think even the original effect they were surprised by, which was that the switch out rates were so different yeah. And, you know, at that but time, why is that protest against you? What does that have to do with you if you're just documenting facts? Well, I think that, um, you know, the, the negative press headline said potentially racist study says black students are taking the easy way out. Um, and so racist study. Potentially racist study. The yes. Study was racist. That's right. And I think that the issue, you know, it actually makes a lot more sense now than it did to me at the time. And economists thought this was crazy at the time. It's actually interesting because, you know, I I got attacked from people all over the country. I mean, it didn't make a major news flash, but within certain circles, it did. And actually, one of the people who wrote about it at the time was uh, Ibram Kendi. this is before he changed his name. He's not the, he wasn't famous in the same way that he is now. Um, but 
the fact that I wasn't pointing the finger at the departments, I was pointing the finger, I think it was interpreted as victim blaming. It's their fault that they're switching out because they're not prepared. That's never how I would want to frame it. I would want it, <laughs> to me, this is, the issue is- You think he framed it though? No, I don't think so. But the way economists talk about things is different. I know. I think that something, I think we're, a generous view is that we can't, we don't know what we sound like or something. <laughs> I get into this a lot with my work on sex work and I've, I work really hard to try to be very factual and it, the use of words can be so triggering to a group of people and I can never, I still can't quite articulate, you know, what exactly it is in hindsight that I, what word I used that was so wrong. But I mean, are you, you feel like you would write that paper differently now? Knowing that non-economists would read it, yes. What would you, you do know, differently? I think that there was, well, I think, you know, you have to be much more, when I say, accounts for the differences in switching behavior. Okay. The way other people hear that is I'm able to explain why every single person switches their major <laughs> and it has nothing to do with other factors. Mm. That's the reductionist claim against economists, as opposed to, you know, on average, this is occurring. Mm. Um, you know, so I did a radio interview at the time um, and one of the people on the show was a blogger from Racialicious who was a regular on the show. And yeah. you know, I didn't really know anything about the show going in. Yeah. And she spent, so she got to go first and she talked about how problematic my study was and the way she described it um, were in ways that it did not think was consistent. With, with, what the, with what the study was. Right. And so my response to that, really by grace, yeah. was to say, if I thought that was what the paper was saying, I'd be upset too. And then right. was able to pivot into, look, we're actually on the same side on this. We yeah. want uh, black students at Duke to succeed in the majors that they're interested in. And to that point, we need to identify the barriers that are affecting that and what resources we can provide to make it so that that would not be the case. So what are you going to say to your old, let's say you could go back in time 10 years to that young economist writing this paper without telling him exactly what specifically to say, you can only say a general principle, you know, like as you think about writing this, I want you to think about writing it in the, uh, that you know, in a different way. What 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 exactly should you be? What I guess what I'm getting at is, how would you pause? What is what pedagogically should we be communicating to young economists about language and audience that we haven't been doing historically, so that we are not unnecessarily tripping people up? And creating confusion. Yeah, it, it, I think it's really tricky um, because uh, on a lot of things, it's just very hard to have a discussion 
where the emotions are not involved. Yeah, yeah. So when you speak about things related to race and you talk about things in a very matter of factual way, yeah, that can be heard as you don't care. Yeah, you are not interested interested in fixing the problem at all. You're just uh, explaining away why we don't need to do anything. Right, um, right. And you know that's how there's <laughs> actually this marriage book I really like, which is um, you know. Again, I'm going to say this, it's going to come across as stereotyping. This is obviously distributions overlap, but it's called Men Are Like Waffles, Women Are Like Spaghetti. And the idea is, is that men compartmentalize everything. You know, So we're talking about this specific issue, not seeing how it relates to the, 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 broader, the broader picture. You yeah. know, the advice, the marriage advice I always give now is, don't try to solve your wife's problems. You know, that's always a mistake, you know? Yeah. Um, and, but that's effectively as economists, exactly what we do. We, we, we are working in the little waffle box. Right. Uh, focused on this particular problem. Yeah. And I don't know how to change that with regard to economics papers. I really try to be very nuanced in my language and such. Yeah. yeah. Maybe in how you motivate the paper, recognizing the racial inequities and the historical yeah. discrimination. Yeah. But there is a sense in which it will not be enough. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's this, uh, I can't, I just now drew a blank on the, I teach it all. I, I can see the slide in my deck, but uh, there was a, there's a famous computer scientist and, and he says, this principle about writing code. And he says, uh, be conservative in what you do and be liberal what you, in what you accept from others. And it's like this principle of code writing, which I guess is like, you know, he's basically saying when you write code, it needs to be like the noise to signal ratio needs to be like very, very low. You need to be very clear in what it's doing and very efficient, you know, choice to minimize this, these unnecessary errors. But when you're receiving the code, either from your you know, earlier part of the code or for some other foreign source, I mean, you kind of, you have to kind of change your viewpoint in that sense, because really the goal when you're on the receiving end of the code, it seems like your goal is to be this antenna. And this antenna is trying to extract information from any meaningful information from the noise. And so you, you have to have as a listener, a certain amount of grace that tolerates that this other person may make mistakes, doesn't say it all right, you know, goes really, really to great lengths to try to, you go to great lengths to try to figure out exactly what the message is and what it isn't. And it does seem like you know, successful communication is a about a sender who is being clear and a receiver that is being charitable in what they're going to allow the sender to say, unless the goal is conflict. That's if right. The goal, if the goal is conflict, then obviously you don't do that. What you do with conflict is you find the most, you know, bad, it, then it's just bad faith. It's just like, you know, trap a person win the debate, win the debate. And, you know, sometimes many of us don't realize who we're talking to. We don't know if we're talking to a good faith or a bad faith person, but there's limits, I think, to what an economist or anyone can do 
if the person they're talking to really is not interested in connecting, you know. That's right. And, you know, it's interesting because I think when I either speak publicly or even giving seminars to economics audiences, you know, the first part is building trust. Totally. You know, we have the same goals. Yeah. We may have different views about how to get there. And I've got some information that may change your mind on this. Yeah. And the issue is whether they can hear the information I say or if it's going to be ruled out because I'm a bad person. Right, right, right. Let me ask you something. So these tests for, okay, so you correct me where my my thinking is wrong. Testing for racial discrimination in admissions. I could imagine Econometrics 1, I get the data set from Harvard, and I run a regression of admit onto a race dummy. Right. And then I interpret the statistical significance on the race dummy, and then I add in more observables. In what sense is this philosophically what we are trying to do in the United States legally to detect for whatever it is that's violating the constitution? And in what sense is it, is it, a, is it a big fat failure? That's not what we're trying to do. Can you kind of elaborate that as like a, a, a multivariate regression? Kind of as a well, yeah, so I think, you know, how to interpret that beginning coefficient. I don't think that coefficient has much of an interpretation, particularly in, um, in admissions uh, because of who, who applies, you know. And that was you know, one of the papers that we published on this is about Harvard's recruiting practices. Mm. And Harvard, you know, they recruit a lot of people particularly African-Americans who simply have no chance of admission. And so, you know, you could make it, and that could be part of the reason, right? Would be, we want to appear as though when you do just that one regression with that one variable Mm. through affecting my applicant pool, I can always make it so that coefficient is. So what's happening? So if I've got an, if I've got a university just in real simple sense, let's say a university, if they're white, they span their, like it, like they, they, they basically task to the university, to, to whoever, and they say, get a pool of white applicants, use this rule, get a pool of black applicants, use this rule. And it's just like very, very different rules. That's right. Okay. If I then run a regression, like, how in the world am I going to detect racial preference in admission when racial preference was used in the drawing up of the application in the first place? So I think that's where, um, I think one of the principles that, you know, it's not randomization for sure, but one of the key principles is how, how do you think about selection on observables versus unobservables? Yeah, right. Right. And so if you can account, you know, in, in the case you just described, if it was differences in test scores alone, you know, mm-hmm. once you account for test scores, then you could see how they were treated differently, conditional, conditional on those test scores. Yeah. And typically the way that works is that um, when you add controls, uh, the coefficient of the on the discriminated group typically goes down because there was 
you know, because of history discrimination, you know, that there was going to be differences Mm. uh, in those things. That was why you had the program in the first place. Right. But uh, what's interesting in the case of Asian Americans is it tends to go in the opposite direction, right? So they're stronger on a lot of the observables. Right. Yeah, controls. It looks like they're the coefficients, you know, becomes more negative. The coefficient as in uh, the, so if I, if I did a regression of admit onto an Asian dummy, nothing else, it'll be positive. Um, well, it would depend. So it would be positive if you had nothing else and you excluded legacies. Legacy. And athletes. Okay. So I dropped the legacy and the athletes. I regress admit onto an Asian dummy. Asians are more likely to. So when does the, so it would be slightly positive and and insignificant. Okay. As soon as you add anything related to academic background. So then I put in high school GPA, I put in high school GPA and zip code. And I start trying to get at these kind of measures of, of underlying academic performance. Pretty observable. And that's when it flips. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, what's a, this is something I just did not appreciate before the Harvard case is how incredibly well Asian Americans are doing academically. Mm. If you did admissions based solely on academics, over half would be Asian American. That is a stunning number. They're, like all groups would go down and Asian Americans would be the only group that went up. Okay, say that again. Uh, I didn't quite follow. So, so, so what? What will astound me? What? What would it? So you know, Asian Americans—they're um, in the low twenties in terms of their share of admits or something like that. Yeah. When you look at like typical applicants. Yeah. Um, if you had admissions based solely on academics, mm-hmm. with some combination of test scores and grades. Mm-hmm. they would be over half of Harvard's. Admissions. I see. Got it. They're just, it's just such an incredibly selective group, selective in yeah. terms of like the measures of probable performance and success and all these things. They, they are uh, as a group high. What's the right word? How do you, this is one of these things we're using. The language is, is really careful. Yeah. I was going to say, I know economists, you know, we, we have, models that say high type, low type. And obviously that's, it's like, what's the right way to start talking about these young people? You know, these, these are young people at the beginning of their, you know, everybody comes at it different. So what's the right, what's the, the, the loving, charitable, honest way of talking about people with this, this underlying, these underlying differences? Well, I think that what happened to them before college was such that um, on average, you see, tremendous differences in um, the uh, skills that have been accumulated right prior to prior to college right right so there appears to be one way you could describe it is to say there appears to be differences in human capital that's right but i think human capital unobservable (laughs) human capital appears to be different but it's like showing up on these observable dimensions that's right. Got it. And to me, that doesn't in any way point the finger and say there's something wrong. Right. 
with uh, the groups that aren't doing well on that. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, you know, there are some people who argue, look, the differences in test scores, the reason African-Americans score worse on the tests is because of stereotype threat. Mm-hmm. And that idea is that everybody expects them to do poorly, and so they do poorly. Yeah. To me, that's giving the K through 12 education system a pass. There are real differences in the K through 12 education experience Mm -hmm. for African-Americans. That's what we need to fix. We we can't shy away from the real issue. And that's actually one of my big concerns with places like the UC system saying, we don't want standardized tests anymore. Um, we're just going to ignore that this is that there's a serious deficiency. Yeah. Not that the people are deficient; that the yeah. educational system was deficient. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for these students, you know, it's interesting. It's like the the uh, one of the papers I teach a lot is is uh, I know you're familiar with is Mark Hoekstra's uh, review of economics and statistics article on uh, the returns to attending the state flagship school. I've always thought that yeah. was like this really interesting study. It kind of feels relevant to what you're working on with Harvard and UNC because it's about, I feel like when I was in graduate school, I came away from, from my labor courses just realizing attending college is, is crucial. College is an anti-poverty program, as far as I can tell. You could see it in my work on crime uh, with the... Uh, you and I actually have some similar backgrounds. We're both interested in sex ratios and marriage markets, but um, you could see the uh, incarceration rate of African-American men just plummeting with uh, college, you know, college attainment, you know, college uh, levels of college enrollment. But so it's like, I I graduated kind of thinking, oh, well, the um, returns to college are important. But then it's like Mark's paper highlighted that there was this heterogeneity even there, you know, like even in these, you know, uh, in, in terms of the, the, the flagship school, you know, and uh, Harvard, just, you know, and the, the reason why this stuff is important, I feel like it gets into these complicated things with regards to how we've decided to organize America, because the United States, uh, we purchase goods and services using uh, goods and services go into the utility function. In many ways, that's kind of the, you know, trying to get utility functions that are virtuous and, and correlated with a, with a life that's worth living is sort of the big goal. But uh, we buy those goods and services with market at market prices using labor income. And so then it, it always wraps back into this issue about something like Harvard or Chapel Hill, which is some of these schools have imbalanced returns that affect labor income and quality of life or might, might arguably like, you know, subjective well-being as it's measured by utility. And I, and I guess I'm just sitting here thinking to myself, like, if you have a group of people 
who are just for historical, it's not even historical accident because they were historically discriminated against in the United States. But, but at this point, it's a stock. African-Americans have come to the table with, the, with this, this different kind of human capital that's going to end up shaping all of their labor income. It's going to have massive impacts on labor income where they go to college. It's like, I don't see how you can separate out the, 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 the fact that there, we've got to decide collectively what exactly is the goal for, this, for these different groups of people that live here in the United States and that one of the existing mechanisms for income is college. And it all wraps back into this whole issue about like what exactly should the composition of the student body be given these like ridiculously imbalanced returns to each of these individual schools. That's right. But I think that some of those things could be balanced more if we were doing the things that were actually successful in changing the human capital yeah, uh, yeah. front. And so, you know, one of the most, it was really disappointing uh, in my mind when after Floyd, uh, I think Kip charter schools decided that their motto is no longer appropriate, be nice, work hard. And I say that mainly because no excuse charter schools, which no excuse, that's something that you, you can't really say quite the same way now. Right. These schools were incredibly successful at closing uh, the achievement gap. You yeah. know, they were actually very successful. Right. We we could be doing that. Um, you know that that's where the where the resources ought to go. Right. Right. Instead, what you see in California now is they're getting rid of advanced classes. You know, there's two ways to deal with an achievement gap. Right. Mm-hmm. You can bring the people who aren't doing as well up. Right. <laughs> or right. you can bring the people who are doing well down. Uh, the getting rid of the advanced classes is not bringing, in my mind, those students up. Mm-hmm. And if anything, it's providing huge advantages to people of means because you cripple the public education system, take the path out for them to develop that human capital. Right, right. And then the people with resources send their kids to private schools or that that stuff isn't going to go on. Right, right, right. And that's where I think a lot of the discussion, you know, we can talk about affirmative action at Harvard. At the end of the day, that's really about appearances. You know, the people, you know, the people who are going to Harvard are all, most of them are coming from incredibly um, rich backgrounds. Right. Right. Regardless of what race, you know, there are differences across the races, but that's where the action, where, where the action is. Right. right. And that's right. what we typically focus on in education. But the, where the where we really need to be doing more is for the, the lower income kids. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. COVID's, COVID's going to, you know, we're starting to see that that's going to be a train wreck uh, mm-hmm. for education for those kids who went to. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Public yeah. schools. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, there's there's certain elasticities uh, that I think COVID sort of highlights, which is that there's a there are groups of students who probably their ability to substitute to the best case scenario in a in a very difficult situation was really they had a very high they were able to do it. It may not have been you know it wasn't a perfect substitute. But they were able to continue to do it. And I think for some groups of students, it was just a, it was, it was a train wreck. Yeah. You know, just like the, their, their ability to make those, those substitutions to whatever was required, you know, could be anything ranging from re the, the access to physical resources, like, you know, uh, computing computers and Wi-Fi that state that's stable and all these things to just simply the way your brain works. You know, just like just being able to be present. Um, I, I definitely think that COVID cut a mark through the students that, I mean, it did in our family completely cut a, cut a mark to the students in weird, jagged way, for sure. And, but within your family, you're able to substitute in ways that other families cannot. Yeah, yeah. And that's the catch. I mean, I think that, you know, I don't, work a lot in the K through 12 space. So this is sort of a non-expert opinion on that. But if my read on the studies is if you find positive effects of say charter schools, Catholic schools, smaller class size, if you're gonna find positive effects for anyone, it's going to be inner city African-Americans. And the, I think that the reason that you see that is the way families substitute, you know, that they're not their, their families are not in as good of a position to substitute yeah. the way yeah. my family is. My kid has a bad teacher. We're going to do the, the bad effects. Right, right. right. So you're right. going to think, oh, the teacher's fine. But no, <laughs> we, we even did the effects of that teacher in ways that other families cannot. Right, right, right. So, so what do you think is the smoking gun evidence that, that Harvard and that, that Harvard university has to, you know, what's, what's the smoking gun fact that's evidence for that's the most damning evidence for racial discrimination in admissions. Uh, that in, so in racial discrimination against Asian Americans. I think that there's a, there's so many damning facts, <laughs> but I'll start with the, the first one, which is Harvard's own, you know, internal offices, they have their own like internal research teams. They estimated models of, of admissions and consistently found a penalty against Asian Americans. Mm. You could look at that, you'll hear people say, well, those are simplistic models. The fit of those models was incredibly high. Yeah. I think, yeah. You know, so they were exploring. I think people, I think people underestimate the, the the shoe leather sophistication that goes on in these admissions office with uh, developing their own internal models. Well, and what was striking is Harvard's defense of this was, well, we really didn't understand the model. Mm. But what was interesting is that those models also had whether or not you were low income in it. Mm. And they were confident that those models, the same model, <laughs> showed that they were giving a bump to low income students. Mm. So it's like you're going to interpret the coefficient one way when it's the result you like and another way when it's the result you don't like. Right, right. 
So their own so, models, their own models showed. So what was the penalty? What what was it? It was a a dummy, a coefficient on a binary indicator for Asian American. For that's Asian. right. That's right. How and big was it? That stuff on the personal rating. You can see there was charts from their office that shows. What do you know? Asian Americans on all of Harvard's ratings are scoring either much better than whites mm. or the same as whites, even on the alumni personal rating. So the mm. Harvard has these alumni interview uh, the students. And even on that, Asian Americans are doing similarly to whites. Yeah. And then you see their own personal rating based not on meeting with the applicants, they do much, much worse. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, so what does Harvard have to prove? Well, I, I think typically in something like discrimination cases, you know, you, you know, what, well, what they have to prove uh, probably depends on the judge, I suppose, yeah. right. <laughs> is the catch. Um, you know, what they were able to say at trial were things like, well, the teachers must be giving them uh, poor ratings. We don't think that Asian Americans are deficient on personal qualities, but maybe the teachers are scoring them poorly. How that is an excuse, I don't. Yeah, I don't, I don't see what I, I don't see what they're trying to. This is, I guess, where it's like it, it's it's frustrating because I I'm struggling to know exactly what the objective function for Harvard is in their own stated goals what is their objective function to create a particular kind of cohort what what is the cohort well i think you'd get a lot of gobbledygook when it comes that's to what that. i was wondering yeah okay um yeah so but i think it is also interesting to think about the counterfactual of if this case was not associated with affirmative action at all yeah would it have played out the same way? And to me, I think the answer is no. Honestly, I don't think Card even takes the case. Mm. Um, I think uh, it would have been a much better, you know, worse look for Harvard than it was. I mean, I think that it was a bad look for Harvard as it was, but because of who brought the case and because of its ties to affirmative action, I mean, that gets back to that waffle analogy, right? Like, mm -hmm. if you look at it in the context of the waffle, there's just simply no argument, in my mind, for uh, the way they're treating um, Asian Americans. I mean, it's a clear-cut discrimination case. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, if you just put it in a different context, it would just be completely unacceptable. I mean, imagine Trump Towers having a discrimination suit brought against them by uh, black applicants and the defense being, look, it's not that we're discriminating against black applicants. They just happen to score poorly in our likability rating. Mm -hmm. That would be outrageous. Yeah. You know? um, there would be protests. Uh, this is, because it's tied to that third rail of affirmative action. Yeah. Uh, but to me, the judge could have ruled, look, you can have affirmative action, 
but you got to stop discriminating against Asian Americans rather than whites, you know? So then um, if you could fill up half of heart, so is, is this what the thing is? Harvard as a university collectively, however, this ends up being decided collectively, they have a preference over their student composition. Right. And that preference is discriminatory. Their preference, I think, lines up with Kendi's in some sense. Like they would like to have their class look like the population. They would like to have it look like the, they would like 13% African-American, whatever percent, what is it? Asian-American is what, five is single digit? Something yeah. Like, yeah. So and they, they would, they would like to have a like balanced portfolio of, <laughs> of American, uh, of Americans. And, but even that, I think, is giving Harvard too much credit in the sense that what we choose to balance on, you know, we choose to balance on skin color. Right. You know, you're not balancing on income. Right. Uh, you're not balancing on parental education. Yeah, yeah. There's a whole yeah. bunch of other things you could have balanced on. Yeah, there's like an, an infinite number of characteristics. Every person is a bundle of just almost an infinite number of characteristics. And so practically... Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you really want a representative class, then you do a lottery among high school graduates. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> and that would be the only way. That would be the only way. The only way it would be to have a randomized student body. Okay. I what mean, do you feel like? I asked this about by, by somebody from a class at Duke about how would you make the, the admissions process more equitable? Uh-huh. And I'm like, it's a selective admissions process. I don't even know what that right. means. You know, even a process where you did the lottery, why is that equitable? Because you've got the winners and the losers of the lottery. We're not uh, equalizing outcomes for everybody. We're equalizing ex ante. Uh, it's like, I mean, it, it, this is all this comp, this is this deep collective choice, social preferences kinds of questions about and it's weird. I mean, I guess we're talking about this at Harvard because we believe that Harvard University will literally change a kid's life more than uh, go into University of Tennessee, Knoxville, you know, or something like that. Right. That's why we're having this conversation. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that that's a perception that it will literally change their kids lives. Yeah, yeah. I'm not uh, totally convinced that um, of the there being massive gains right. relative to the counterfactual for yeah. at that level. Right. I think that when you're at the margin of going to college or not, yeah, that's the big margin. That's the big margin. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, college quality effects. I think get undone a little bit by college major effects. You right. Know? Right. Right. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a real valid question about whether it's worth it to be paying the, the huge sums of money to go to just a slightly better school. Okay, I want to conclude with this. So you've now spent many years working on this, going deeper into administrative data about questions that, uh, about, about phenomenon that we had only kind of speculated about possibly what are the top two 
things that you learned that, you know, being a career economist that had worked on topics in education and affirmative action, what are the top two things that you learned that you just literally, it was, you just would have never learned had you not been involved in these two cases that are of like real, that you think that matter, that matter for other people too? Right. So I think one of the things is that the, the Supreme Court rulings in the Michigan cases were really a handout to elite private schools. Oh, interesting. That when you think about doing holistic admissions, a place like Harvard can do that in a way that UNC cannot. Mm. UNC is effectively, and you can see this in our models, they are more formulaic. Mm. Uh, I mean, I don't even know how Berkeley's doing admissions now without test scores. You know, think about how many applications they get with the resources that they have. You know, I just don't know. Um, you know, the other part Wait, to it, that, part, Peter, are you, are you basically saying that Harvard and elite universities get, first of all, a profound amount of information about each each student and they get this incredibly right tail applicant that they don't even need test scores to find the the students that are going to be successful well i I think that i think they can get information in a way that the public schools can't because of the resources you know so you wouldn't have to take those test scores but you know you're going to see you might have things like winning a science fair, you know, right. and other proxies. Right. Um, and that's information that the public schools aren't even going to really collect because yeah, they don't yeah. have resources to do that. You can see that yeah. just in the number of letters Harvard requires versus UNC. You know? I mean, the, the, the fact that any university would ever voluntarily say, we're not going to collect this information or make decisions based on this anymore you should already just kind of automatically think the only people that would ever voluntarily do anything is because they don't need that thing. Right. Right. Like they, they, they're, they're endogenously sorting into something that probably they incur almost no cost of like, you know, of doing it. So an elite university that drops some sort of admission criteria Probably they've got something just as good sitting right there. Well, I think I'm not sure if they have something just as good. I think it's also a protection against an Asian American discrimination suit mm. you know, because Asian Americans are just doing so well there. Right. You need to take it out of the criteria. And that probably brings me up to the second point, which I think is a huge one. I think holistic admissions favors people from privileged backgrounds. And I'd say that even more so after going through these cases. Yeah. You know, we think about test scores as being unfair because of coaching and they're correlated with income. And that of course is true. Yeah. But the other things are even more unfair. You know, Harvard has an athletic rating for non-recruited athletes. And the people who score best on that are white legacies. Mm. And why is that? Because um, part of that is, are you likely to walk on to one of Harvard sports teams? Well, Harvard sports 
normally we think about sports as being more of an equal opportunity thing. That's not true at Harvard. Harvard offers more varsity sports than any school in the, any school in the country. Mm. And what's the marginal sport? It's sailing. So sailing, who does sailing? People who are coming from really rich families. Yeah. So that that was another stunning thing is that I think we really need to rethink college athletics. It's one thing to think about Duke's basketball team, right? As a pathway where sure, of course we're going to admit you. You're, uh, but it's another thing in my mind to think about a sailing team as being. I don't have to be particularly strong academically as long as I'm on the sailing team. That right. seems like a pathway for the rich. Um, mm-hmm. Mm. Hmm. Well, how much longer do you think you'll be involved in this? This, this is, uh, I mean, you've got now a treasure trove of data too, right? You'll, you have a lot of questions that you're going to be probably mining for a long time, just even your scholarly career outside. Well, of- I, I wish if I had access to the raw data. Oh, uh, you don't. You, the, I for, don't. What do you, so what do you use? How can you be an expert witness without the raw data? Well, I, I had the raw data at the time I wrote my reports. Oh. So all my reports have, have tables from that. Got and it. so um, we, you know, we've published four papers effectively out of my reports and out of other things revealed in the, in the trial. Yeah. You know, they actually tried to get the database admitted into evidence and not surprisingly, Harvard objected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would have been, once it's in evidence, anybody can have it. That's right. I mean, that's, you know, my fear with a lot of this stuff is universities will selectively release their data to people who will get them the answers that they want. Mm. And no one else will be able to look at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a serious um, problem. It's like pharmaceutical companies being the only ones allowed to evaluate the trials of their drugs, you know. I, I bet you the Asian American community was has been. I bet this has been very troubling. Oh, and confirming for them. So that, yeah. I didn't really know about this, but then I talked to like some of my former Asian grad students, and they're like, "Yeah, this is. We've known this has been going on for a long time." Mm-hmm. But I think what to me what's probably more troubling to them is not that it's going on, but the fact that now that it's been exposed, how comfortable people are with it. That's disappointing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so nice to talk. Uh, We met a long time ago. You came and presented your uh, terms of, I think it was no, I don't think you presented the terms of endearment paper. I think that you presented something else, but you were gonna. But uh, Chris Cornwell had invited you to Georgia while I was a graduate student, and we—I was in Chris's Chris's office with you, and because uh, we had this marriage market, I had a marriage market dissertation, and yeah. uh, and you had this other thing, and um, it's nice to to meet uh, again after probably like sixteen years. Yeah, it's been a long time. It's been a long time. Yeah. Well, good luck with everything. Thanks for sharing uh, everything about this. This has been really interesting for me. I hope for other people too. Uh, oh, I love doing it. Really appreciate you having me on. I mean, I look at the other people you have on. It's like, wow. <laughs> <laughs>
this guy's <laughs> which one of these doesn't belong <laughs> <laughs> all right you have a great day you too talk to you later